0: God made man good, but he also made him weak. When God created mankind, he did not work sin or evil into his being. He made us body and soul and declared both to be good. But we weren't made strong per se. We weren't made independent. We were made weak. Man was beset with many weaknesses by design. So just to live, for instance, we need air. We need food, water, and sleep. In the Garden of Eden, all these needs were met perpetually. But as you know, we don't live in the garden anymore. Man has fallen, fallen, the world is cursed, and things are quite different. Now there are many constant threats to our frail constitution. The ocean is a threat, for we might drown and not receive air. The sun is a threat. It might cause drought or famine. We We might be deprived of food and water. Even sleep itself is a threat. We are rendered unconscious a third of the day and prone to harm. The ultimate picture of man's weakness is our need for sleep, I think. A third of our existence, we're rendered incapacitated. And it's not a very safe thing. <laughs> Threats to our physical lives abound. The second biggest threat we face is other humans. I don't think high walls or locked doors would have been required in Eden. But now that sin reigns, man is prone to take what he wants and hurt others who stand in his way. And speaking of sin, just talk about man's weakness. Man was so weak that he was easily tempted and captured by Satan. Man's fall into sin didn't take long. It was short. It was easy. Now man has a nature that is enslaved to sin. And temptations and spiritual threats abound, which seek to increase our sin And that's a real problem because the biggest threat we face of them all is God. God himself is our biggest threat. God is perfectly good, holy, and righteous. He made us to be that way. We are no longer that way. We are entirely not good, not holy, not righteous. The consequence of this, though, is God's wrath, which is the expression of his righteous indignation toward sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's like a dam that is cracking and crumbling and starting to break. We we live under the constant threat of being swept away by God's judgment at any moment, because you don't know the hour in which you will die. And then Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. So being so thoroughly weak, what man really needs most is just Help. We need help. We have many problems, physical, spiritual, many threats, physical, spiritual. And most of them, there's very little we can do about them to help ourselves. We are often helpless. So we need, therefore, help. Without help, we will perish. We need help physically. Sometimes we need help finding air or food or water or security. And we need help spiritually We need most of all forgiveness from our sins and then deliverance from temptation and the schemes of the devil. God knows all this. He's not surprised by our needs. He sees our helpless state. He is, in fact, the one who made us, designed us to be weak, that we might live in a constant dependence on him, for that glorifies him. In reality, we depend on God for every breath, and we most certainly depend on God for for salvation, but God is glorified when we finally come to realize this, we give up our rebellion against him and, and said, we go to him for help. He is the source of all help. And God promises to hear and answer that the cry for help in his name and deliver us and forgive our sins. You should cry out to, to God for help in trouble. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Really crowd to God for help in all things. Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains of dependence and trust in the Lord. And God is pleased to receive and answer such prayers in faith. This should be our faith and therefore these should be our prayers. That is what we're going to find this morning As we return to the Lord's Prayer, the Lord Jesus teaches us how to pray. He knows our frame and our weakness. He sees all the threats we have living in a fallen world. And that's why he leads us in uh, in how to pray to include a plea for help. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6, we come to finish our study through the Lord's Prayer this morning. Matthew chapter 6, the end of the Lord's Prayer. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, you could say the Lord's Prayer is is the the peak of the Sermon on the Mount. From here on out, we will descend back down the Lord's teaching to finish this sermon. This sermon is all about showing us righteous living as citizens of Christ's kingdom. We await the fullness of this kingdom to come, but as, as made citizens of it right now, how ought we to live We've learned so much already. Presently, we're learning how to pray. How ought we to pray, to depend on God? Christ is showing us how to commune with God, who's our Father in heaven. This prayer begins with the right recognition of the transcendence and imminence of the one to whom we pray. That's why Jesus leads us to begin prayer with praise. Back in verse 9, it starts off, Hallowed be your name. God's name is is worthy, holy, set apart for who he is and what he's done. He's just worthy. And from that recognition flows everything else. Like verse 10, your kingdom come. Now we long for the reign of God to come on earth. Not our own reign, his reign to come that all might hallow his name. Verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. With a God like this, how could we ever pray our will be done? How could we ever think our will is better than his will? No, now we submit and bow down to his will, seeking only his revealed will to be done in this world, in our lives. Already, you can see with the first three petitions, Jesus sets our focus on God. Prayer is it's not meant to be man-centered, but, but God-centered, God-exalting. It, it pray, it's praise, But Jesus assures us, God is our father who sees our needs, our frailties, our weaknesses. He does care for us. He's ready to help us. And so Jesus next leads us to pray basically for help. First for physical help. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is no plea for abundance. It's a modest prayer, but it's actually designed to keep us in a daily dependence on God. Keeps us in a posture of dependence on him. Pray that God would meet all the needs of the day, each and every day. And then Jesus also shows us how to pray for spiritual help, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is our subject last week. It shows really our deepest need. We need most from God forgiveness. You know, with daily bread, in a sense, in a sense, there are human means to get daily bread. If you're desperate for it, you could work, you could beg, you could steal. But there are no human means to get forgiveness. There's nothing you can do. We are utterly helpless here. We're fully at God's mercy. Thankfully, help has already been sent in Christ. The Savior has come. He has died on the cross. He has risen from the dead to pay for your sins, to forgive you your sins. And Jesus does that once for all when you come to faith in him and promises to continually cleanse us before the father that we learned last week, but there's one last part of this prayer, this, this final petition to which we turn our attention to this morning. It comes in verse 13 where he says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is not two requests. It's two sides of the same request, but it is a final plea for help, for spiritual help, for protection, for deliverance. Jesus knows we need help, not just physically, more so spiritually, just to endure and finish our race of faith. We need help for temptations and tempters abound our study through this Lord's Prayer has been informing, but more so convicting, and I hope reforming. Let Christ's teaching reform how you pray. Learn to pray according to his priorities, his pattern. That's what this prayer is. It's a pattern. It's it's a form. It's not meant to be mindlessly repeated as we've learned, but it's more like a form, a form which you then fill out when you add your own heart to it. You make it your prayer pray not like the religious hypocrites or the pagans, as he said earlier. Learn to pray like Jesus. That's what we've been trying to learn. That's all we've been trying to learn over these several weeks, which we will wrap up this morning. To finish our, our overall very simple but impactful goal, to learn how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. We finish that now with the sixth and final petition in verse 13, do not lead us into temptation. So that's our subject this morning. Let's Let's look at this verse, verse 13, the final petition of the Lord's prayer. He says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now it's notable how Jesus is not unconcerned with our bodies and our physical needs. We pray for our daily bread, but but clearly he puts a higher premium on our spiritual needs. Principally, our holiness is more important to God than our worldly comfort. When you say that for most people, at the end of the day, they just want comfort. If you boil down the wants and desires of most people, it's, you're probably going to get back to something related to comfort. This life is hard. It's a struggle. We just want peace. We want rest. That's not wrong. It's just that Jesus knows nothing robs you of peace and comfort more than sin. Eternal comfort awaits only after the race of faith. And so in verse 12, Jesus leads us to deal with past sin. Our debts are forgiven. We have forgiveness. But in verse 13, he helps us deal with future sins. We're trying to avoid it altogether. We don't want to go back into debt. Do not lead us into temptation. Now, this, this prayer, though, immediately begs the question, does God do that? Like Does God lead us into temptation? Is God responsible for that? If so, how can that be? I thought he wants our holiness above all. How could he be the one leading us into temptation? That seems troubling. But at the same time, if if God does not do this, why would we need to pray? Do not lead us into temptation. So the relationship between God and our temptations must be answered if we're going to pray this prayer meaningfully. So let's answer that. Keep your finger in Matthew 6, but turn over to James chapter 1, because it is the half-brother of Jesus, James, who tells us in unmistakable terms that God tempts no one. God is not the tempter. God himself never plays the role of the tempter to sin or evil. That we establish first. God is not the tempter. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Enough said. Doesn't get much clearer than that. But look here, G- James uses the verbal form of the same word for temptation Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer. That word is pyrosmos. Just kind of remember that. Pyrosmos, temptation. Do not lead us into pyrosmos, Temptation. God himself is never tempted by evil. There's zero inclination to evil in God's nature. So he's, he's untemptable. And accordingly, he's not the one to tempt us. He does not tempt anyone. Scripture is clear. God never does evil. He's not the author of evil. 1 John 1.5, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. That's speaking ethically. So we must affirm right away that, that God never tempts us. We affirm that. But you'll notice in the Lord's Prayer, it's not, we're not praying that do not tempt us. We're praying do not lead us into temptation. So we can agree God does not tempt us, but, but might he lead us into a temptation? Well, Let's keep going. And we know God is sovereign over all things. That includes evil. God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over all the secondary agents who are responsible for bringing evil into this world. That includes Satan, demons, and fallen humans who rebel against his will. And it certainly is within God's sovereign power to direct and use evil and evildoers for his good and greater purposes. And that is something God does all the time. He's allowed sin and evil to enter his good creation for a very short time compared to eternity, but he has done so to bring about his greater purposes for greater goods you all know Romans eight twenty eight. It tells you that. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him. For those who are called according to his purposes. Not all things are good. But God works them all for good. For his people. So what are some of the good purposes. That God aims to bring about. Through the sovereign use of evil and evildoers. Well for one. How about the salvation of all the elect. Remember what, what Peter preached to the Jews, Acts 2.23? Peter preaches about Jesus. He says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And later, Peter affirms the same sentiment in a prayer, Acts 4.27-28, where he says, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The death, the death of Jesus was evil. It was easily the greatest evil act ever perpetrated in world history because of the truly sinless and innocent nature of the one crucified. Many people were crucified, but only one of them was the Son of God. Being perfectly sinless, righteous, God incarnate, for him to be put to death at the hands of godless men was pure evil. It was the greatest evil ever perpetrated, yet Peter tells us it was predetermined, planned, foreknown, purposed, and predestined the words he uses, all by God. Herod, Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles, and Satan himself all conspired to put Jesus on that cross and they succeeded and they did evil. But unbeknownst to them, they were serving God's hidden purposes to turn that evil into the greatest good ever, the salvation of God's people. And that's what God does. You can thank God for that. We really are no better than those people who nailed him to the cross. Indeed, it was our sins that put him there. If we had not sinned, collectively, he would not have needed to die. But this spotless Lamb of God willingly ascended the cross on our behalf. As Peter again tells us later in his first epistle, 1 Peter 2.24, that Christ, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is a good place to already pause and ask. Have you returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul? Have you recognized your own sin which contributed to putting Jesus on that cross? Have you turned from your wicked way and cried out to this crucified but risen Savior to to save you, to forgive you by that work? Have you cried out to God through Jesus for help, for, for that ultimate help of which no one else can help you? You cannot help yourself. Only this crucified and risen Savior can help you for forgiveness, for salvation, for new and eternal life. Christ is the only way and your only hope to be delivered from the threat of eternal death. But Trust him now and be granted eternal life. And when you do come to this savior, you find there is another good purpose that God is seeking to work out in your life. And now it's, it's your sanctification as we call it, your Christ likeness. And God is quite willing to use evil or evil doers to bring that about if necessary. This is God's goal for us now. Romans 8, 28. The next verse, verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew us, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose now for our lives to become like Christ. God's mission now, his goal for your life is that you are sanctified, made more into the image of Christ practically. So you're like a slab of marble that's taken from the quarry. An artist has purchased you and brought, him, brought it into its workshop. You belong to him. You've been set aside, but you're still a rough cut slab. You still need to be sculpted by the artist according to his image. And that, that's kind of what the Lord is doing with us. He's chiseling away all that doesn't belong that the image of Christ might more and more show in us, come out in us. And sometimes, though, the artist needs to knock off a huge chunk of stone that doesn't belong. And God has a special tool in his bag for doing that. It has a label on it, and it's often called trials. Trials. Few things are as effective as trials for purifying our faith and making us more like Christ. If you're still in James 1, isn't that what James said earlier in James 1, 2? He starts his letter by saying, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and that endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, he says. So now here's the connection. If you've been wondering where we're going with all this, James 1:2. do you see that word trials? Consider it joy when you encounter various trials trials. Well, actually, that is the same Greek word for temptations. That's the word pyrosmos. This same Greek word that he uses down in verse 13, it's variously translated trials, sometimes temptations, other times the exact same word. And it has that range of meaning. It can legitimately mean both. Its its meaning will be determined by the context. So then we now have to ask, so So which is which? How do you know? Is it a trial? Is it a temptation? What is the difference when you think about it between a trial and a temptation? What's the difference? They're both a type of test. It really comes down to the purpose of the test. If the purpose is to solicit you to do evil, to bring about the worst in you, to stumble you, well, we call that a temptation that has an evil intent. It is a temptation. That is something God never does. That is never his purpose. But if the purpose is to solicit you to do good, to bring the best out of you, to make you more like Christ, to purify your faith, well, we call it a trial. And that is something God does. God is happy at times to test us by fire. He puts us in the fire not to consume our faith or to cause us to sin, but to burn away what doesn't belong and to bring us out on the other side, tested, proven, verified, more like Christ, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1. So now, one step further, sometimes though, trials and temptations come together in the same event There are several events where you have an evil agent tempting a person, but at the same time, God intends that event to be a test, a good trial. This evil agent has evil purposes in tempting you, but God intends the whole event as a test, a trial for your good. Can this be? Is this not exactly what happened to Job? I mean, Satan is the one who afflicted Job. He took his property, his possessions, his health, all on purpose to tempt Job to curse God. That was the whole point. I will tempt him to curse you. And talk about massive temptation. But God, at the same time, God designed Satan's afflictions to test and prove the faith of Job. And God would never allow Job's faith to be consumed by this trial. Though difficult, Job passed the test. As Job one twenty two says, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Same thing happened to Peter. Peter thought his faith in Jesus was quite strong, but it wasn't. He was all bark, no bite. But God had great purposes for Peter. He designed to, he needed to to instill in him strong faith if he was going to lead the church when Christ was ascended. How how was God going to chisel and shape Peter that he had such a strong faith. Well, how about a trial? How about before the cross? What did Jesus say? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And Satan, and obviously that permission was granted. Satan is, is no autonomous force. He's on God's leash, but yet he was granted permission by this sovereign God, sovereign over evil and evildoers, to sift Peter like wheat, to tempt him to deny Jesus. And in this case, Peter would stumble, but he would not fall away from the faith. For Jesus held on to him and assured him in his prayer right after Luke twenty-two thirty-two. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Indeed, he, his faith did not fail. But then above all things, and you can go back to Matthew 6, even Matthew four, did this not happen to Jesus? Did this same thing, a temptation and a test come together for Jesus? We already studied it in detail way back in the day, Matthew chapter four, verse one, but look back there. Matthew four, verse one, the temptation of Jesus it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I and mean, there you have it. Everyone knows the wilderness was Christ's greatest temptation. And there, the devil was there to cause him to sin, to tempt him to sin. Satan, not God, was the agent responsible for the temptation, for the solicitation to do evil. But at the same time, God was clearly sovereign over that temptation, purposing it as a trial, a test to prove Jesus as the son of God. And Jesus, after all, was led up to the wilderness to be tempted, it says, by the Holy Spirit. And needless to say, Jesus passed that test. But I think we've answered our question now in Matthew 6. God never tempts us, but might he lead us into a situation where we will be tempted? Yes. Whenever he does so, he does us no wrong. He's not evil. He's not tempting us to do evil. Like Genesis fifty twenty says, where Joseph said, what, what men mean for evil, God means for good. What men, what Satan mean for evil, God means for good. But it is possible that God could use evil circumstances, evil events, evil people, even the evil one himself, Satan, to tempt you so that your faith might be tested, verified, approved, made stronger, and that you become more like Christ. In fact, this notion is only confirmed by the second half of verse 13. Back to Matthew 6, verse 13. It says, Do not lead us into temptation. But second half, deliver us from evil. See, God's, God's not the one doing evil to us. Rather, whatever evil might befall us, we cry out to God to deliver us from evil. He's the one there to to save us, to rescue us from evil and evildoers. That includes the devil. In fact, I think Jesus is talking about the devil when he says, deliver us from evil. Your marginal note in your Bible likely says an alternate translation, deliver us from the evil one. Your Bible might include that. That's because in the Greek grammar, this term evil has a definite article, the evil. The grammar is ambiguous. It could be masculine. It could be neuter. That simply means it could be talking about evil in general or the evil one. Personal, Satan, both are possible. But look, several times Matthew uses this phrase, the evil one, to definitively refer to the devil. As does Paul, Ephesians 6.16. We need the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, Satan. Jesus, same thing, his high priestly prayer, John 17.15. He prayed for his disciples. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, same term. And there are plenty of verses where Satan is called the evil one. And you pair that with the first half of verse 13, do not lead us into temptation. You have a pretty strong case. He's talking about the devil here because that that is Satan's MO. He is the evil one who through his spiritual forces works to lead us into temptation. He's the one leading us into temptation, not God. We go to God to deliver us from it. Now, this is not to say Satan is responsible for all of our temptation. First John 2.15, the world can tempt us. James 1.14, our own flesh can tempt us and does so most often. But it is primarily Satan and his forces whom God sovereignly uses as an external agent to test us and purify us. And though Satan means all such attacks for evil, God always means them for our good. So to to kind of recap here, Christ says, do not lead us into temptation. He doesn't say, do not tempt us. You never need to pray that. God never tempts. He's not, uh, that never plays the role of the tempter. You never need to pray, God, don't tempt me. But can God lead you into a testing where you might be tempted by the evil one? Yes. From the evil one's perspective, you're being led into a pyrosmas, a temptation to, to make you do evil, to, to stumble you. But from God's perspective, you're being led into a pyrosmas, a trial designed to prove you, to test, purify your faith, that you come out on the other side looking more like Christ. Have no fear though, God. Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. And 1 Corinthians 10:13. It says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, pyrosmos, with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God will never allow his children to stumble so as to fall away. But sometimes it is his hidden will for us to be tested. 1 Peter 5 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And sometimes, like the early church, God allows us to be clutched in the lion's mouth and shaken around. And like Peter, sometimes he allows us to be sifted like wheat. But God will never let us be consumed, never let us be torn apart. He always purposes to use. Such encounters to make our faith in him stronger. And he will hold on to us and not let us fall away. So with all this study in mind, we can get back to the Lord's Prayer. And I think we can, we can see now what Jesus means in this last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Really, starting with this second half of verse 13. We are to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Evil and the evil one. If it is God's hidden will for us to be tempted by the devil, I mean, what can we do about that? All we can do is endure and find the way of escape. But you better not do that in your own strength. The point is that you better be praying to God for help. Help rescue me from the evil one. Deliver me from his temptation. The term deliver means rescue. As if you're being snatched from the jaws of a lion. Not long ago, there's a video online of a zoo handler, this lady uh, putting on a, a kid's birthday party at a zoo with an alligator there, feeding the alligator. And she wasn't looking, the alligator unexpectedly bit her hand and locked on. And she tried to free herself, she obviously couldn't, and then the alligator started to roll. You know what that means. So she tried to resist as best she could, but talk about helpless, there's nothing you can do, you're You're, you're lost. But thankfully, a rescuer, a deliverer jumped in there and freed her. Her hand was saved. That's what we need. We need a rescuer at that point. We need a deliverer for we are weak. And as often as we find ourselves in the clutches of the evil one, which is to say as often as we find ourselves under great temptation, pray for God's rescue. Pray that he would empower you to flee temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Pray that he would just make wide open the way of escape and embolden you to take it. In reality, we never know where our temptation is coming from, be it the world, the flesh, or the devil. We don't have eyes to see that, but it doesn't matter whether we're being tempted by evil or the evil one. Because our response is to be the same. It is to stand firm in the faith, put on the armor of God, defend against the flaming arrows, flee temptation. But to do all that, you had better be praying for God's help, for his rescue, for his deliverance when that temptation comes, because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. How how long are you going to last by yourself? In fact, how often do you prove to be weak when under attack? When you are tempted, how strong are you? What, what's your track record? Battle by battle, fight by fight, how often do you Overcome, flee the temptation versus fall into the temptation. Everyone's got a track record. How about when you're alone? How about when you're tired? How about when it's late at night? How about when you're already in sin? I mean, man is weak. We are still so easily taken down by temptation. At the very least, then, should you not be regularly praying, like Jesus says, Just Lord, deliver me from evil and the evil one. Strengthen me in the inner man to resist. Help me to endure and escape. Deliver me from the evil one. Now, of course, as the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And from our perspective, it would be far better off if we were just not tempted at all. Can we just avoid the temptation? We have no such control, but... Still, it would be better off if we never got our hands stuck in the alligator's mouth to begin with, from our perspective. And that's what Jesus is leading us to pray in the first half of verse 13. So back to the first half, we pray first, do not lead us into temptation. We know God has good purposes in our trials, in our testing, in, even in our temptations by another agent. It's meant to have a good outcome, the proof of our faith. But that does not mean we are to run headlong into such situations. Though God may send trials, we are never told to seek them out. I mean, with our limited wisdom and strength, you would do well to leave it entirely up to God to be the one knowing when to send a trial. Do not be so foolish and headstrong to throw your, mouth, your head into the, the mouth of a lion as some display of strength, thinking you can endure. You'll likely be crushed. The disciples show us this. They thought they were invincible. They thought their faith was invincible. Later, Matthew, you can go to Matthew 26 if you want. Matthew 26, 33. Jesus tells them he's about to be crucified. Peter says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. It's Peter. I will never fall away. And the next verse says, it wasn't just Peter. It says all the disciples said the same thing. They all were saying, we will never fall away. And they failed to humbly acknowledge the weakness of their flesh, which means, therefore, they didn't think they needed help. They thought they were fine. They were strong enough. They will never fall away. They don't need help. Their confidence in self was misplaced. Right after this, what happens? Jesus takes them to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. He takes Peter and a few others even closer to pray. And what does he tell them? Matthew 26, verse 41, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. He says, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus knows better. He knows they are very weak because they are men. So he tells them, you better keep watch. And that speaks of being on the alert for enemies, but he was not talking about the Roman soldiers. He's talking about temptation. The temptation to deny him. And practically, you know how you keep watch? By praying. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. But as you know, they, they failed this test because they failed to pray and we know they failed because they all fell asleep, which again is the perfect picture of man's weakness. Physically, spiritually, we just, we fall asleep. We fail to watch and pray, and then we stumble. Now we trust God in all things, even when temptation comes, but the Lord is instructing us essentially to know our limits. So we pray not to be led into the place of testing where we might be tempted, especially beyond what we can bear And this prayer really just captures the heart of a believer who wants to stay as far away from sin as possible. Wants to stay as far away from the edge of the cliff as possible. I don't want to boast and and show how I can play by the edge of the cliff. Now, we've been forgiven of past debts. I don't want to go back in the debt. No, we are forgiven. I don't want to use grace as a license to sin. We'd rather be kept as far away from the lion's den as possible. So far as it's up to us. And so in all then, this last petition of the Lord's Prayer, it's a plea expressing, in one part, submission to God's will, but also confidence in God's purposes. Should he so will, we are tested to be tempted. We trust him. We're confident, though, in his strength to deliver us. We pray to avoid the tempting trial, but if it should come, we know we can endure because God is faithful to deliver so you keep watch by praying this prayer and witness God's strength deliver you in the evil hour and also give thanks that God has not left you alone in this fight, this race of faith. He knew you would need some help to run, to fight. And that's why on the night before his death, in that upper room, before Gethsemane, the Lord promised his disciples when he ascended, he would send them another helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the helper to come. Now, God, the Spirit resides within us, sealing us for the day of redemption, empowering us to resist temptation, propelling us to endure. And you should thank the Lord, the helper has come. And it's not without coincidence that right after promising the helper, Jesus told his disciples this, John fourteen twenty seven. He says right after, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. God, the father to whom we pray, God, the son who died and rose again, and God, the spirit dwelling within are the source of this peace, that the peace you're yearning for. Again, thinking of prayer, wouldn't you say that the prayers of most tend to revolve around comfort? People just want comfort in one of its many forms. More money, better health, rest, leisure. Life is hard. It's full of trouble and toil. It's a struggle in a fallen world. And most people, they just want a pain-free, trouble-free life. That's what they want. And if you were to solicit prayer requests from most people, I mean, it's going to boil back down to some form of comfort. God, just just give me peace. Give me rest. Give me comfort. And that is not by itself an evil desire, but I hope you know it. It doesn't address your greatest need looking for that comfort in this world. The the longing of your heart for peace, for rest, for comfort, that's not evil but you're not going to find it in this world and you're not going to escape the troubles of this world. This is a fallen world that can't satisfy in which there will always be trouble. And so the safety, the security, the rest you long for, it's only found in one place, in one person, it's Christ. Your help comes from the mountain, from the rock, from Christ, the God of peace, from his coming kingdom. That's where the rest is found. His is a kingdom of righteousness. And that's what makes it so peaceful, that kingdom, because the Lord knows what robs peace and comfort the most is what is sin. This is why Jesus leads us to pray far more for sanctification. We need forgiveness from past stumbles. We need freedom from future temptations. And the point we're making here is, you know, why don't we pray more for that? Shouldn't we be praying more for that, for protection from future stumbles? Life is hard, bodies ache, relationships suffer. And keep praying for all that, please do. But if we are to follow the Lord's lead in the Lord's prayer, should we not pray more for spiritual things? And here that includes avoiding temptation and being delivered when it comes. So just think right now, what, what tempts you the most? How are you struggling with sin and losing in what area? And the next question would be, how much time do you spend praying about that? Praying to resist, to flee, to not enter the temptation. Or when you do to be quickly delivered from it, to find the way of escape, to overcome. If your answer is zero time, praying about that, you think that might have something to do with why you keep stumbling. Maybe you should keep watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. Pray for your daily bread and go ahead, keep praying for your creature comforts, as the Puritans would call them. There's nothing wrong with letting your request be made known to God. If your body is breaking, your business is failing, your wallet is shrinking, It's not wrong to ask God for help. We depend on him for everything. Ask God for all the help you can think of. But be convicted to pray more for your soul, for your sanctification, for kingdom concerns. Make sure you are keeping watch and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And don't delay. Don't make excuses. What if Jesus said that to the disciples and they responded back like, well, we kind of need a nap. Or like, didn't get my eight hours, need to take some rest. I, I would like to finish watching my favorite show first. Can we do this prayer thing later? No, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, 1 Peter 4.7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And that has to include prayer. You must be praying. And that has to include, by the way, prayer for one another. In Ephesians 6, which we read in scripture reading, Paul tells the church to put on the armor of God to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But right after that section, he says this, Ephesians 6, 18, he says after, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints we need to be keeping watch for one another as well. We need to be shoring up the defenses and the walls of one another. So look, you you don't need to stop praying for all the worldly comforts of one another, but make sure you're also asking, how do you need to resist temptation? How do you need to fight the flesh? How do you need to be delivered from the snare of the evil one? You know, just let the Lord challenge how we pray for one another. You know, that's, that's what this Lord, Lord's Prayer does. It confronts and challenges how we pray. He was challenging how the Pharisees prayed, how the pagans prayed. Yet still today, it challenges how we pray in our Christian subcultures. In the incarnation, Jesus was earthbound like us. but He never lost sight of his father in heaven. And so we need to follow him in prayer that your eyes might be lifted from just the concerns of this world to God in glory, to the kingdom to come, and to your dependence on him. We we so desperately need this God for help. Now, to finish, speaking of God's glory, the Lord's prayer ends with a doxology. It's a word of praise to God. Let's make mention of this, verse 13, the very end. It says, for yours is the kingdom of God and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, likely you'll see this verse in brackets in your Bible, and that indicates these words are not in the earliest Greek manuscripts we have. These words were almost certainly added later by a scribe. They're absent from the earliest Greek manuscripts of Matthew, as well as the Latin, the Coptic, the Syriac. They're not known in any of the earliest commentaries on the Bible. It's easy to see how an ambitious scribe would have embellish this prayer as some were prone to do and make it seem a little more spiritual the lord's prayer begins on such a high note of praise shouldn't it end on such a high note of praise but though these words are are almost certainly not part of the original text they certainly capture biblical truth none could deny that to god belongs all glory kingdom power praise forever it's only right for us to ascribe to god all the glory forever that is what we aim to do, especially since he is our great God and our helper. You know, last week I made mention of the, the beloved hymn, and there is a fountain filled with blood, written in 1772. Well, a hundred years later, 1872, another beloved hymn was written, I Need Thee Every Hour. This one was written by a housewife as a poem, which she then gave to her pastor. He added the stanza, He added a, or the refrain, he added a tune, and, and here we have it. It's a simple plea expressing just total dependence on God as our helper, the one whom we need every hour. And as the stanzas go, we need him for his peace. We need him for his purposes. We need him for his promises. But a special note is that second stanza, which shows how we need him for his protection. The second stanza reads, I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. When God is close, enemies flee. That's the point. And when you are close to God, temptations flee. When you're standing, so to speak, in the presence of God's glory, what other temptation could possibly allure you away from God? What what could seduce you from him and his greatness? When you see him as he is, when you behold his glory, when you're praying to him, what temptation could win that battle? So make this your prayer often, by which you draw near to God and his glory, and see how he answers to shield you with his presence, his peace, and his protection until the race is complete. This is our confidence, as Paul said in 2 Timothy four eighteen: the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen let's make that our prayer yet again our father in heaven we we do make this our prayer and our plea to exalt you and to go to you for help in a time of need and that's that's almost every hour it's almost every minute and we need your help we need your deliverance your protection your your promises we just we need you you've made us weak that's that's part of your glory that we can depend on you every minute every hour and, and show your greater glory your greatness that the source of everything we need we see our sins by which we're put in an eternal need before you we need salvation we need forgiveness we see the Savior the gospel, the good news that has come that he has already died on the cross and rose from the dead that whoever believes in him shall not perish but be forgiven have everlasting life we thank you for this yet. That's not the end of our need. We, we still need you every moment to overcome sin, Satan, the world, all that allures us away from you. We are still earthbound in so many ways, like Martha, worried and bothered by so many things of this, this world. But this world is not our home. We long for that eternal kingdom. And I pray that in, in the Lord's Prayer, we learn to set our mind on things above, fix our eyes on Christ, look heavenward, concern ourselves with, with his purposes and then pray accordingly. Pray for that help. We pray you do help us from from all snares, from the world around us, the flesh within us, Satan and demons as well, all who who seek to draw us away from you. Free us from such temptation, and if it were to come, empower us by the Spirit to overcome, deliver us from evil and the evil one. We can rest in total confidence that you will. You will safely bring us to your heavenly kingdom. And so indeed, we pray to you be all the glory forevermore. That, that is our plea, our prayer, our praise to you be all the glory for all we've learned and will continue to do so. Now bless us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.